I, I came across a really, really interesting website recently. It's called thedeathclock.com. It's a site where if you punch in, if you put in your weight, your date of birth, if you smoke or not, if you eat a lot of cheese, if you put all this in, it calculates your day of death. Now, obviously, that's extremely disturbing, right? But I was super curious. So I, I punched it in. Does anybody want to know my last day? Anybody curious at all? Everybody's like, yeah, tell us. <laughs> Here it is. Get your phones out, put in your calendar, get ready. Saturday, May 4th, 2069. It's nice, right? That's good. I was like, I'll take that. So if you put it in your phones, when that day comes around... Pour out a burrito on me. Like, this one's for C.S. Fritz. <laughs> but as I was punching this in, and I did one for you, Bryce. I love you, buddy. I was, as I was punching this in, I kept thinking, I kept thinking how horrific, or could you just imagine the disturbing possibilities of just the thought of knowing the exact day of your death? Oh, Every passing second is a shot of distress. Every sunset is this emotional chaos of another day gone, leaving many with the harrowing question, which is, how do I want to face my own death? How do I want to face my own death? So if you spent any time at all dabbling in Roman or Greek literature or mythology, you will see countless, countless tales of heroes in the face of their own death as calm, dispassionate, and removed from emotion. That is what it means to be stoic. Stoicism is, you know, is birthed in Athens. And yet, none of those descriptions would be fitting for Jesus Christ as he faced his own death. There was nothing stoic about Jesus hours before his own death. If you study the life of Jesus Christ at all, what strikes you like lightning is the shocking contrast as he approaches his end. You see, up to this point, there seems to have been this, this air of divine control. Jesus isn't surprised by anything, really. The prelude to his death has been almost this, this, this calm power that should, and at least has done for me, it evokes this awe and amazement. But today, in our verses, everything changes. Everything. Jesus, who knew his own death, who came to die, who could hear the final ticks of his death clock, hours before his own death, opened himself up emotionally to its fullest. And it was anything but calm, dispassionate, or removed from emotions. So if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Jesus, today may surprise you because what we're about to go over this morning has been called the most sacred and solemn scene in the entire Bible. So with that, let's read Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Should be on the screen. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here, while I go over there and pray. 
So like Pastor Lorenzo said, we have been in just a very short series trying to make the most impact out of Easter. And what we're trying to do is basically spy on or follow or eavesdrop on Christ's final days and his final hours before his execution. And last week, if you were here, we remember we sat with Christ and his disciples at Jesus's very last meal before death, at his last supper. And it was there Jesus basically reframed the Jewish people's entire past, present, and future. And all of ours recently, I mean, basically. And he prepared his disciples at this meal. He prepared them emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually for the next horrifying hours that will precede their meal. And from there, we follow Jesus and his disciples into a garden. He goes to a garden where Jesus will now prepare himself Jesus will now prepare himself emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. If anyone is familiar with what's famously and historically been called the Passion or the Passion Week, uh, then you know that it basically unfolds between two geographical poles, between two poles, between an olive tree and a Roman executioner's tree, between Gethsemane and between Golgotha. Golgotha we'll get to in a couple weeks collective church, what we're going to witness is such profound suffering this morning in this garden that we'd think we'd be reading of the execution or of the cross itself. It's that profound. So let's join Jesus there now. Let's, put, let's, let's be with Jesus. Let's eavesdrop on Jesus as he's in this garden between the Mount of Olives, between Mount Zion. There it is just like Kidron Valley. And at the bottom of Kidron Valley, outside the city walls, looking up towards Jerusalem, like I said, is a garden. It's a garden. These disciples would have known this garden well. They would have come there often. It would have been their local coffee shop. They would have known exactly all of its ins and outs and the shapes of its trees. So they know it. Now, I think for probably most of us, when we talk about biblical gardens, we have this like luxurious, you know, basic like veritable forest of ideas like neon ivy, right? Neon ivy or blooming flowers with like rabbits leaping from hole to hole and bluebirds falling on your shoulder. That's what we think biblical gardens are like. Even in archetypal literature, a garden is not a place though of cucumbers or one to pick onions. So we have to remove the typical idea of gardening or a garden. Actually, if you think about it in literature or from storytelling, a garden is a place of delight, a place of love. It's where you go and drink good wine. It's a place where lovers meet at, underneath the moonlight. It's a place of intimacy. Essentially, a garden is paradise. But if you were to visit this garden, this exact garden called Gethsemane, what you would discover is something rather different. It is not a typical paradise. It's a yellowing field with a handful of aging olive trees and like these ancient olive presses, which is what Gethsemane, Gethsemane means. It means olive press. And these olive trees look like they were designed by Tim Burton himself. Like if Tim Burton was gonna design an olive tree, this is what they would look like. They're mangly and they're thin, some of them, and they have greenish and gray leaves. And in this garden, John chapter 18 tells us that they had to enter through a gate, telling us that we know this garden is surrounded by walls. And it's in this very familiar garden, Jesus chooses to have his darkest hour, which is odd, right? I mean, if Jesus is running from the authorities, as we know he's, as he is, if he's in need of privacy, why not stay in the upper room? If you need privacy, if you're going to have this emotional, like, uh, you know, unflooding or flooding, like, why, why, 
Why not stay in the privacy of an upper room or, or why not go to Bethany where he's been staying this whole week? Why here? Why go to a compact, public, Tim Burton garden at night? Why? Well, is it? Is it because everything started in a garden where paradise was lost in Genesis chapter three, what we have here is paradise restored. You see, in a garden first began our sin and in this garden begins our redemption because Adam had failed his temptation in the garden of Eden. It is the reason Jesus faces his own temptation in this garden. And how does Jesus feel about that? Look at verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Are, you, are we hearing Jesus say these words? I'm sorrowed, I'm troubled. How, how troubled are you, Jesus? How sorrowful? To the point of death. That's how much I'm bothered, is what Jesus tells them. See, when Jesus is alone with his best friends, notice there's only a few of them, when he is there with his closest of amigos, he swears and he opens up that all, again, this emotional floodgates. Again, you've probably all been in this place before, right? Where you're just falling apart and you're exhausted and that one friend looks at you and he goes like, Andre, you okay, dude? You're like, oh, oh God. And he just, Ugh. has that ever happened to you? It happens to me every time I see Nick. Casey, you okay? Oh, Nick. There's that moment where you just get around those people that you just feel safe with and Jesus unleashes. He unleashes. He's exhausted and he's full of sorrow and troubles. What we have before us is Christ's complete divinity and his utter humanity. If you're here and you're curious about Jesus, to properly understand who Jesus really was, then this moment, these emotions are essential. It's, man, it's so easy for devout Christians to think of Jesus as some sort of demigod. He's this Hercules, or Jesus is this untouchable Superman. Basically, if he was gonna bowl, he would get a strike every time. That's how we think about him. Or Jesus, never play poker with Jesus because he will get a royal flesh every time. Or he can read all of your cards every time. We think of Jesus in this unbelievable way. He gets a home run every time. No, Jesus was utterly human in every sense of the word. And this is proved above and beyond in this garden. And I hope, I hope, I hope as a pastor, as a friend, as a brother in Jesus, that that brings uh, comfort to your bones. For everyone here struggling to open themselves up to God in despairing circumstances, and I know there are some here, the garden uncovers that we do not have just some divine distant sympathy, but human empathy. Hebrews chapter four, I'll read it very quickly, but I... I'm so pumped to get into this book after Easter. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The frustrations you have, Jesus says, I know. The temptation to hold on to that emotion, Jesus says, I know, I got it. 
The temptation to hold power over somebody and not forgive them for whatever these temptations may be. Jesus says, I know, me too. Jesus not only knows, but knows them in their extremes. Look at this, these words sorrowful. So if you have a Bible and you wanna write this in there, these words sorrowful and troubled transcend basic emotions. These words in their most beautiful original language would translate as like restless, dazed and confused and deeply, deeply grieved. But, 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 an intensified form of grief, like a mutated form of grief. It's grief upon grief upon grief. It's multiplied, multiplied grief. It's sorrow upon sorrow. All of this suggesting basically a shuddering awe a conscious, unbounded whore that invites in terror. I mean, just to be honest, I mean, as a, somebody who's trying to communicate this, there's no words to really communicate this. I was on my thesaurus for hours trying to figure out how to do this. And nobody, I can't communicate this level or this depth of emotion. Luke in his account uses the word anguish to describe this, but it's a certain agony that exists nowhere else in the entire Bible. And Jesus was so gripped by this force. Look at verse 39. He was so gripped by this. This is what it says. And going a little bit further, he fell on his face. I mean, we are anxiety-driven, rotting with worry type of people. At least I am. But I could not tell you the last time I fell on my face because of sorrow. I'm bothered might send out a frustrated tweet here and there. I might shove my face with comfort food, whatever it is, but I'm not falling on my face out of sorrow. Luke in his account, him being a doctor and all, gives us an added detail of Christ's final hours. Luke 22 verse 46 says, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. It's raining blood from his face. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've probably heard the night in the garden where blood leaked from the pores of a nervous, nervous, sorrowful Jewish rabbi. Now this has been wildly interpreted. Some thinking that it's more figurative expression because it says like drops of blood. Some here thinking he may be sweating and it's so just festered up that it's just like the, it's like the color of blood. It's just dirty sweat. In other words, he's sweating so profusely that it appeared like the shedding of blood. And others taking a more literal approach and thinking that he's actually oozing blood through the pores of his skin on his face. Through the pores saying that Jesus experienced hematidrosis, a, a, a rare medical condition where the blood vessels burst under such anguish and physical stress. Either way, if you had been there that night watching Jesus through the olive trees under the moonlight, his face would have been in the dirt, ugly crying and something blood-like falling from his chin and beard. It would have been a gnarly scene. And as Jesus, a follower, excuse me, as a follower of Jesus, excuse me, seeing this, at least maybe I can ask this now, wouldn't you want to know why in the world Jesus is being so emotional? Okay, you're sorrowful, why? You're troubled, why? Why the emotions? Is Jesus just emo? Is he just eating a pint of ice cream and listening to like a Julian Baker album? Like, what is he doing? Is this what happens when one approaches the final ticks of their death clock? And is this what happens when people know when they're going to die? 
Let's find out. Verse 39. My father, if, 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 if it be possible, if it be possible. All right, let's slow our roll. This is insane. If we take this at face value, it would seem that Jesus is shrinking from death. Now, Jesus, are you asking to not face the cross anymore? Jesus, are you, are you afraid? Are you chickening out? Up to this point, Christ has been calm, cool, and collected. But now, where the rubber meets the road, Jesus, you have second thoughts? Is that a savior we want? Well, we need answers. Why the distress? Verse 39 again. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because of a cup, Christ is emotional. Because of a cup, Christ is afraid. Now in high school, I created a little horror short film about a mug that haunted people. It would show up in all these odd end places and the person would walk in like, there's my mug. It's an Oscar worthy film. I called it Mugshot. You can find it somewhere on YouTube. <laughs> Friends, what we have before us, Jesus is not that. Jesus is not afraid of a cup. What we have before us is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The cup is biblical language for wrath. God's wrath is language for his opposition to mankind's, to yours, and to my sin. Let me to ground that point for you. An Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah 25 says, this is what the Lord, the God, excuse me, what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup, this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Isaiah, another Old Testament prophet, 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Collective church, the wrath of God. If I could just, if I, the wrath of God to me is one of the sweetest of doctrines. To me, it's one of the sweetest loveliest of all theological truths. And I found myself over my years of following Jesus and in pastoral ministry, falling head over heels for what that truth stands for, for what that cup stands for, for what wrath stands for. And what it stands for is love. Love. Now, because that isn't wildly believed for our city, because that isn't probably wild believed in this room, that just goes to show us that his wrath, for many, which is detestable, the doctrine of the wrath of God has fallen on hard times. Again, in today's culture, any concept of God's wrath upsets our modern sentiments. It's disconcerting. It's too intolerant. It's too judgmental. We live in a day where we hold the gavel, where we judge, we decide what's deserving of anger, fury, or wrath. And LA expresses love how? By affirmation. That's how LA expresses love. By affirmation of any decision, of any determination, of any desire. You feel that way? Absolutely. That person loves me. You want to do that? Absolutely. That person loves me. 
So how can wrath, this cup, be love? Because for one to love greatly means one will be angered greatly. This, I mean, think of it this way. This is a very simple example. But if I love my wife, which I do, but she betrays me and I wasn't angered by it, my love would be hollow. I love my children, which I do very much. And if somebody harmed them and I wasn't enraged over it, my love should be questioned. And actually, if you watch a lot of horrific criminal cases where somebody was harmed and the person didn't show anger or fury, they're one of the first people that they say, he did it. They question his love. God's anger, hear me closely because I'm gonna get some emails. Come up and talk to me. I'll buy your burrito and we could talk about it. But I'm gonna say God's anger, God's wrath, and the existence of hell itself are all radical testimonies of God's steadfast love. Not the opposite. I watched Braveheart recently. It's an incredible film. This is for you, RJ. I watched Braveheart recently. And in this, I was thinking what launched the veracity of Scottish leader, William Wallace? What launched it? What was it? It was, it was his love. William Wallace loved his people. He loved his land and he loved his wife. And when her life was taken, it launched a torrent of wrath upon England. So just to be frank, if we have a shallow understanding of God's wrath, could it be because we have a shallow understanding of God's love? Because to belittle any of this is to make light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Jesus wasn't fearful or shrinking or chickening out of a Roman cross, of nails, of whips, of dripping blood. He wasn't freaked out by any of that. Martyrs throughout our history have faced deaths far worse than Jesus, put on a cross and then burned at the stake. Jesus wasn't fearful of actual fleshly pain. Jesus was facing God-forsakenness, the kind that exists when Jesus bears every sin that's ever been committed upon himself. Any domestic violence, any rape, any abuse, any lie, Jesus took that upon himself and took that punishment. Meaning all of this showing us if he's not fearful of death and that is what he is freaking out about, that he ultimately knows so intimately the father that even a moment of the father's displeasure overshadows the torture of a thousand crucifixions. Author William Lane says it poetically. And very straight to the point, he says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. And he staggered. See, Jesus knows that love and justice are unified, not in opposition. And think, look at this, look at this. This is why Jesus says in verse 39, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Have we just gotten so used to this text that we're not even realizing that he's not saying, God, can we stop all this together? 
What Jesus isn't saying is, God, can we just all of a sudden just forgive and just move on? Jesus has a healthy understanding of God's wrath and he asks for other means of accomplishing God's will, not for it to be stopped. He goes, this is gonna happen. Is there another way? And of course, there wasn't. So he drinks every last drop of God's justice, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And God's right wrath, like a flood, came, and Jesus, the innocent, drinks up the guilty's punishment and thus detoxifying. For us here and now, I hope this makes sense, to enter the garden this morning, which is what we are all doing, is for us to be reminded that this cup was ours. Oh, Jesus is eating some cup. That cup was meant for you. It has our name written on that cup. Again, I just want to share with you one more quote from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, a British 1800 preacher that I couldn't escape. And it's a little bit long, but I couldn't escape it this week. And he says it better than I could. Spurgeon said, how black I am, how filthy, how loathsome in the sight of God. I feel myself only fit to he to cast me into the lowest hell. And I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there. But I go into Gethsemane and I peer under those gnarled olive trees and I see my Savior. Yes, I see him wallowing on the ground in anguish and hear such groans come from him as has never come from the human breast before. And I look upon the earth and I see it red with his blood while his face is smeared with gory sweat. And I say to myself, my God, my Savior, what aileth thee? What's wrong? I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin. I am suffering for your sin. And then I take comfort. For while I was fain would have spared my Lord such anguish, now that the anguish is over, I can understand how Jehovah can spare me because he smote his son in my stead. So for Christians, this is a remembrance. This is a grounding. And for those here who don't believe, This is an opportunity. How do you want to face the ticking clock? Is your eternity secure? Or, or would you prefer to reject Christ taking the cup? No, I'll drink my own. Would you prefer to drink it yourself? If anyone wants to know what our rejection looks like to him, it looks like Christ agony, distress, sorrow in the garden. I mean, that is what our sin requires. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, the gospel is saying, let me drink it. Jesus is saying, let me drink it. The very climax of the gospel, if you're, not, if you're unfamiliar with this, or the very summit of the good news of Jesus Christ is a term known as, and if you've got a journal, write it down everywhere. It's known as the great exchange. It's known as double imputation. That is the beating heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll use this language from today and from last week, where cups are exchanged. The great exchange is cups are exchanged. Last week, Christ gave us a cup we don't deserve, which is the, his, his cup of the new covenant, if you remember. And this week, we give our cup to Jesus that he doesn't deserve, the cup of God's righteous wrath. We exchanged our cup with Christ. So when we celebrate communion up here on my right and on my left in our time of response, which we'll be doing in just a few minutes, when you take that cup, 
Would you just dwell upon that? And if we hold that, what I'm talking about right now, if we hold this understanding of this great exchange, if we hold that, if we apply it, if we submit to it, if we receive this, this, this rectifying, the salvaging that the gospel brings, then things, and hear me ever closely, then things will start to be put right again. Even just saying that, I can hear some eye rolls in the socket of their skulls. I can hear eyes rolls. Casey, I've tried that. Casey, I take communion every week. Casey, I've been a Christian for years and God has not shown up. God has not brought anything. God has not put anything right. Friends, Christians, do you believe that in the first garden, because of that alienation with God, we then psychologically are alienated with ourselves? Do you believe because of the misalignment with God, we are physically misaligned with nature itself? Meaning we now experience sorrow, toil, physical decay, and death. That is the macro since the garden. I don't have to tell anybody here, we live in a world filled with suffering, disease, poverty, racism, natural disasters, wars, aging, and death. All of that misery can be traced back between the chasm between God and man. That's almost easier to believe. All of us get that. Yeah, easy, that stuff sucks. It's so much easier to believe. But the micro is harder to believe, which is that all of our problems are symptoms of the soul separated from God. So for those here today who may be heavy-hearted, for those longing for man's approval and affection, for those here who are in broken marriages, for those here who are exhausted, for those here who cannot break free from addictions, for those here who just have no idea what to do, for those here who have been in Christ's shoes screaming out, let this cup pass, Asking God, do you want this? Really, God? Please, God, not this. Knowing that, how shall we stand? What shall we do? What should our response be as Christians? Well, verse 39 tells us. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. That we got. But this new line, nevertheless. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I hope we're picking up on this. Jesus doesn't end his prayer in like domineering emotions, but in unconditional trust. I know for me, I'm very guilty of ending a lot of my prayers on just an emotional this rather than on trust. Oh God, amen. What I need to be able to say each and every prayer as I'm before God is nevertheless, Nevertheless, has anybody here heard the, the, the term liminal space? Anybody heard that term before? Whoa, oh wow. Uh, it's, it's not a theological term by really any means, but liminal space is the time between what was and what will be. Between that, that's liminal space. Between the familiar and the foreign. That's a liminal space. It's a place of transition. It's a place of waiting. It's a place of not knowing. And it's a place of grit-like trust. Now, sadly, and I'm guilty of this, 
But I feel many Christians cross the threshold over into liminal space and when the world begins to fall apart or unknown or becomes chaos, we bow out. The liminal space we can't handle. The liminal space is what takes, you know, boys to men and girls to women and and, and from milk to meat. The liminal space, if we are in there, we bow out. If we can't handle it, the world starts to crumble, the sky starts to fall. We abandon trust and we blame. And we do this all before a bigger world is revealed. Friends, did you notice, I'm gonna flesh this out, but did you notice that God isn't answering the prayer of his only begotten son? Sometimes we think it's just us that God doesn't answer prayers for something like that. God is not answering Jesus's prayer. I mean, the physical sufferings to come are unimaginable, let let alone the emotional crucifixions or the betrayal of some of his closest friends or him being severely misunderstood. And when we get to the cross, you're going to see that he is utterly alone. And at any one of these moments, Jesus had, in our opinion, probably every right to disregard trust because Christ is in that liminal space right here, right now. And that's a good point to go, yeah, you should run. Get out of there, Jesus. This is insane. God isn't here for you. Your people, your friends are ditching you. Disregard trust. But what does Jesus remind us of? That trust, this way of trust, theological, Christian, Jesus following trust, shifting into obscurity. It's, 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 it's into the undefined. And the consolation isn't the predetermined or the delineated plan for the future. The consolation is the personal God. It's a personable. Meaning, right when, think, right when we think Jesus has every right to push God aside, right when we go, that would make sense if Jesus completely abandoned the mission. Right when he had every right to do that from our opinions. Look what he does. Look what he does. What does Jesus say? In verse 39, he says, my father. The most endearing term of ways to relate to God. My father, nevertheless. Author Michael Casey says it beautifully. Jesus fixes his gaze on the one who could only, excuse me, on the one whom he, his entire selfhood depends. You see where Adam in the garden, in the first garden, chose his own will and lost paradise. Jesus submits to the will of the Father and invites us to paradise. Jesus holds perfectly and sinlessly the balance of emotion and faithfulness. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? the balance of emotions and faithfulness, both in good and in the bad. Also, are we picking up on the lessons? I hope we're picking up on this because this is such a rich, overflowing story. But are we picking up on the lessons how one should talk to God? This final days of Jesus are also final lessons in how we are to communicate with God. That being honestly. Brutally honest. This is brutally honest is such almost this brass key to this lock of when I don't feel like praying, how should I pray? You pray brutally honest prayers. And you say, God, I'm scared. You say, God, I'm furious. You say, God, I'm in need. You say, God, let this cup pass. God longs for your honest words and your honest desires. And so we have Jesus lamenting in the garden. He's speaking out his desires. Jesus is blunt and Jesus is transparent. Most of our tendencies and distress is to close the curtain on honesty with God. 
Jesus models that it should be the exact opposite. God longs for your honest words, your honest desires, but he also desires your unconditional trust and obedience. Our prayers, and I'm wrapping up, but our prayers should be riddled with desire on our lips and submission in our heart. Every prayer should be this desireful, this beautiful desiring, longing, imploring of God, but ends every time in submission. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And to not pray like this, Christ tells us, Christ calls it something. I'm gonna read these verses. Verse 40 of chapter 26. And so Jesus is there, he's bleeding, he's praying this out. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, and here it is, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, and I came, and he came again and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away, prepared for the third time. He prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Matthew doesn't even write it down. This is what he did the third time. Three times Jesus, Jesus came from a private place to the garden to his friends, passed out, snoring, catching Z's, prayerless and unable and weak. And three times Jesus implores them, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Can you just imagine? I mean, I, can you just feel his disappointment? Can you feel his disappointment in their liminal space? So clearly, faithfulness to prayer, especially in stressful times, means quite a bit to Jesus. Clearly, faithfulness to prayer is to have the Spirit win the temptation game. I think what this should teach us Christians is when we are confronted and tempted in those liminal spaces, when we are tempted by those domineering emotions, or we're tempted on those days to think that God isn't showing up because he didn't show up in the way we wanted, when we are tempted like that, what we have to remember right here is prayer is the resistance. Prayer is the resistance. Jesus is showing us that prayer is the weapon of choice against temptation. So for any of us encompassed with infirmity, bogged down in suffering or bothered, Jesus would say, watch and pray. Watch and pray. And if you're saying again, and I'm going to end on this, Casey, I've done that. Is it possible that you've only done step one? Meaning you'd submitted your desires to God, but have not prayed or believed the words, nevertheless. If Christ is dismayed by prayerless disciples in hours of need, are we to assume he is any less dismayed with a prayerless church or with prayerless disciples today? Go to him. Go to him. I encourage you, there's gonna be people between those trees and on the sides of those shelves who want to pray with you today. They're gonna be wearing lanyards. They're incredible people who I love deeply and they wanna pray for you. Go and receive prayer because apparently Jesus cares a great deal about intercession, meaning asking other people to pray for you. Jesus cares quite a bit about it. Do you? I mean, do we? Receive prayer today 
gosh, the world is so ensnaring. Friends, the devil is so busy. Temptation is swarming. I hope today as we see this, that the words of Christ would ring out like a trump in our ears. Watch and pray.